The title for my sermon this morning, you probably have noticed, is something old and something new. It's about the relevance of both the Old and the New Testament to our faith and to our lives. And in the words I'd like to read at the beginning, words of Jesus, we find him standing somewhere in the dawn of the New Testament, looking back into the Old. And he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. As you and I become more and more familiar with the New Testament, we become more and more impressed with the many signs that its authors were very familiar with the Old Testament. Not just in the teachings of Christ, but in the writings of the apostles, those men that Jesus chose and Jesus trained. We find countless references and allusions to the history and the poetry and the characters and the theology of the Old Testament. Unlike too many Christians, these men knew that an understanding of the Old Testament is essential to an understanding of the New Testament. This is a principle of the interpretation of Scripture that has become increasingly important to me as I've grown in my faith. I am very much aware that my knowledge of the Scriptures in total and of the Old Testament in particular falls far short of where one would expect it to be after more than 50 years of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But as my knowledge of the Old Testament has increased, I become more and more aware of ways in which our interpretation of the New Testament not only can be but ought to be informed by what we know of the Old Testament. And this morning, I'd like to give you some concrete examples of ways in which an awareness of the content of the first 39 books of the Bible contribute to our understanding of the last 27 of those books. The neglect of the Old Testament on the part of many Christians is both theological and deliberate. It isn't simply that they don't have time to read the whole Bible. It isn't just that they have made a commitment to master the New Testament before they turn their attention to the Old. It's that they believe that the former Testament is more or less irrelevant to the faith and to the life of the Christian. These are the folks who will say, well, that's the Old Testament, when that part of the Bible is quoted in a discussion or an argument, and particularly if it's used to support an idea that they don't like or accept. These are the people who claim that the law offered salvation on the basis of the good works, while the gospel offers us mercy based on faith. To them, Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah were good men of great usefulness to God, but they weren't born again. They didn't have the Holy Spirit as we do. They had a, only a partial revelation while we have the whole counsel of God. And all of this means that the Old Testament has little or nothing of value to contribute to the faith and the knowledge of a Christian is their view. 
The words that I read in my text just a moment ago are among many words in the New Testament that indicate that this clearly was not the view that Jesus held of the authority and the value of the Old Testament scriptures. He said, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law. And I'm sure that many of you are aware that in the Hebrew language and with the Old Testament was written, the jots and the tittles were the tiniest marks of lettering and punctuation. I'm going to read or refer to a number of familiar texts in the New Testament. And as you hear them, I urge you to try to imagine how a Jew living in the first century would have understood their meaning. And I'm assuming that that imaginary Hebrew is like the men that Christ chose to be his apostles, one who is well informed about the scriptures which he understood to be the constitution and the foundation for his faith. Some of these examples are more obvious than others. In his record of the birth of Jesus, Matthew wrote, All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. A Hebrew reading those words, whether or not he's yet a Christian believer, would immediately recall the seventh chapter of Isaiah, where the startling prediction is made, that when the Messiah made his appearance among his people, his mother would be a virgin in the full and the most natural meaning of that word. If such a person overheard John the Baptist describing his calling as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the ways of the Lord, his mind would be drawn at once to the 40th chapter of Isaiah with its promise of the coming of Israel's Messiah to comfort his people. And the part of that promise that a herald would be sent to announce and to prepare the way for that coming. When such Hebrews heard Jesus refer to Jonah or read Paul's references to Abraham, when they learned of Peter's mention of Noah and James' allusion to Elijah, their knowledge of these Old Testament figures would flesh out these scant New Testament references and would add to their meaning. These are obvious examples of ways in which one's knowledge of the Old Testament fills out his understanding of what the New Testament is saying. There are others that are not so plain. For example, in the first chapter of John, we read of Jesus' first meeting with a man who was to become his disciple and later be appointed an apostle whose name was Nathaniel. Nathanael was a good friend of Philip, who, after he had found Jesus, went looking for Nathanael and brought him to the Lord that he might meet him as well. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said things that indicated that he already knew this man, both his character and his habits, and knew them well. Nathanael was amazed by this, and he responded by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. To which Jesus responded, Assuredly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. When you and I became Christians, it's not unlikely that someone recommended that we begin immediately to read and to study the gospel of John. 
And since these words are in the first chapter of John, we came upon them early in our Christian experience. And when we read them, we knew at the very least that in them, Jesus was making an extraordinary claim for himself. But Nathaniel, as a Jew living in the first century, would have had a much broader and deeper understanding of these words. He would have immediately recalled an event recorded in the 28th chapter of Genesis, in which a man named Jacob was traveling away from home and spending a night in an open field in a strange land with nothing but a smooth stone for a pillow. And according to Genesis, he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached into heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and the Lord stood above it and spoke to him. To Jacob, that vision was an encouraging sign that God was with him in the darkness of that night and in the strangeness of that land. But Nathaniel. Jacob's ladder was now given a larger and a fresh meaning. The one who now stood before him, whom he had just declared to be the Son of God and the King of Israel, is the conduit by whom angels can descend to earth and by whom men might ascend to heaven. Later in the same gospel, Jesus would say of himself, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know, as Nathaniel knew, that Jesus of Nazareth is Jacob's ladder. Another of these is found in that great body of Christ's teaching commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. It's found in the 24th and 25th chapters of Matthew. And there Jesus speaks of a time in which the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. When you and I were young believers, just becoming familiar with the scriptures, we read those words and naturally assumed that the Lord was predicting the end of the physical universe as we know it. This apparent destruction of all things shaped our interpretation of the wider passage in which these words appear and convinced us that the Lord was anticipating a future cataclysm with consequences even greater than those of the flood of Noah. But when we look at this in its context, we have questions about whether we're interpreting it incorrectly. We read ahead and we, we find that the disciples had just asked Jesus about a statement that he had just made about the destruction of the buildings of the city of Jerusalem. And we understand that the Olivet Discourse is at least in part the Lord's answer to the anxious questions of these men who had in them a deep and proper respect and fondness for that city. We wonder how these men who had just asked Jesus about the destruction of the city would have understand, understood his reference to the sun and the moon and the stars. I'm quite sure that these godly, well-informed men would have thought at once of the 13th chapter of Isaiah. In it, God declares the judgment that would soon fall upon the city and the kingdom of Babylon. The chapter begins, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah saw. 
And God continues his revelation of the near future by speaking of armies of a nation in the mountains that would sweep across the land of Babylon. And he says, behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of the prophecies in that chapter are couched in language that seems universal. This is the day of the Lord, we are told. A day on which God says, I will punish the world for its evil. But the context makes it plain that the subject of these words, the object of God's wrath, is the city of Babylon and the empire of which it was the capital. And tucked away near the middle of Isaiah's burden regarding Babylon is this. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Sometimes you and I describe a great event, whether good or bad, as being an earth-shaking event. When we use that phrase, we don't expect anyone who hears it to interpret it literally as if the world really shook when whatever we're talking about took place. This is an exaggerated form of speech that we use to make a point that we expect other people to understand as we understand it. And so it was with Isaiah's prophecy of the destruction of the Babylonian Empire. And such would be the assumption of the Jewish men who heard the Lord's description of a time yet to come in which the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. These words refer to an event that the Lord himself identified as one that would take place before the generation of his contemporaries had passed away. And that would be the utter climatic destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel by the armies of Rome. Something that did happen, just as Jesus said it would, about 40 years or one generation after he spoke these words. Another helpful example of ways in which the Old Testament contributes to our understanding of the New is found in the fifth chapter of Matthew, where we hear Jesus say, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. This occurs right in the middle of the turn the other cheek and go the second mile paragraph. I wrestled with these words about clothing at an earlier time in my Christian life. To me, They seem to mean that if a bum on the street approached me, admired my jacket, and asked if he could have it, that without asking any questions, I should offer him my shirt as well. And I assumed that by the word sue, that the Lord meant an urgent or a desperate plea. And fortunately for me, in this time of my uncertainty, nobody asked me for my jacket. It was only when I made a very deliberate effort to begin to understand the Old Testament that I discovered the principle that stands behind the Lord's words. It's found in the 22nd chapter of Exodus, where we read this. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be to him like a money lender. You shall not charge him interest. And if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, 
You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for it is his only covering. The scenario that the Lord had in mind is one in which a poor man has asked a neighbor for a loan and pledged a piece of his clothing as collateral for that loan. And contrary to his promise, he has not repaid his loan. And now his creditor is forced to take him to court to secure that that is rightfully his. The Lord says that the man who hasn't kept his word should be so stricken in conscience as to offer his benefactor a second garment as an expression of his contrition and embarrassment. And knowing this about the middle of that paragraph informs our understanding of the whole paragraph. A fourth example of the helpful use of the Old Testament in understanding the new relates to words of Christ recorded in Matthew 18, where we hear Jesus say, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I was once the pastor of a fiercely independent congregational church that had these words printed on the cover of its bulletin every Sunday morning. It expressed that congregation's disdain for councils and synods and bishops and any authority outside the walls of the local church, which in its simplest of forms was to them nothing more than two or three believers assembled for a Christian purpose. But is this what the Lord meant? When we look at this single verse in its wider context, we notice a couple of things. One, we notice that these words were spoken to those men that Christ had appointed apostles. They were leaders with special authority and unique responsibility in the early church. And like other things that Jesus said to those men, we have to be very careful about taking those out of that apostolic context and applying them to a broader Christian audience without scriptural warrant for doing so. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, we note that the subject that Jesus is addressing in this larger section of scripture is what we Presbyterians call church discipline. Church discipline has to do with those sins that we Christians commit against one another. And here we find the Lord's required steps as to how we might deal with those offenses. And the last of those steps is for an unrepentant brother to be excommunicated from the church. And to the leaders of the church, at least to the apostles, Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The entire paragraph deals with judicial process. The men who heard Jesus say those words were familiar with the Old Testament law. And I think their minds would have drifted almost at once to the 16th and 17th chapters of Deuteronomy, where we find a rather lengthy section dealing with judicial process. The passage begins, you shall appoint judges in your gates, and it ends with a strong admonition for everyone to heed the orders of those judges. And near the middle of this section dealing with judicial process, we find this principle. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one. In my opinion, if the passage of Matthew 18 applies to us as non-apostolic Christians, its meaning is that in the process of discipline, the agreement of at least two or three elders is required before the harshest punishment the church can impose is levied upon a person. And in my opinion, we crawl out onto very thin ecclesiastical and hermeneutical ice when we try to make these words mean anything else. A final example of ways in which the Old Testament informs our understanding of the New is found in words of Christ recorded in Matthew 27. There we find Jesus on the cross, dying not for the sins of the world, but for mine and for yours. And in the midst of his suffering, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are haunting words that drive a stake into the heart and the conscience of a Christian because they speak to us of the enormity of the horrors that were hung on him as he was dying for us. But there are also words to which a certain historical or theological interpretation has been assigned. Many times we've all heard people say that because God cannot look on sin, he literally turned his face away from his only begotten son as he bore the awful burden of our sin and our guilt. According to this view, God the Father actually abandoned God the Son. But is this how we are to understand these words? If the Father had abandoned the Son, to whom was the Son speaking when he cried out, why have you abandoned me? And a Hebrew, well informed about his faith, who was standing near enough the cross to hear Jesus say these words, would have recognized them immediately as coming from the 22nd Psalm. And those are words that were written by David at a particularly troubling time in his life. It was a time in which the sin in his own heart and the intrigue that swirled around him were almost overwhelming to him. A time in which his faith and endurance were approaching their breaking point one in which his heart felt abandoned even while his mind found its rest in trust and praise. Our Lord Jesus was at such a point on the cross, tormented by his enemies, forsaken by almost all of his friends, tortured in mind and heart and body and soul. These words of David flowed from his memory and expressed his deep sense of pain and isolation. It's instructing for us to be reminded that the one we called Lord interpreted all of the circumstances of his life and found a measure of comfort in the worst of them in terms of his knowledge of and his love for the scriptures. May these examples of our need to know the whole counsel of God spur each of us to read and to study and to contemplate the entire range of the scriptures. For they are altogether the inspired word of God, which, in the words of Paul, are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the believer might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And may the Lord our God lead each of us to the point at which his word finds its way to our lips in times of great joy and terrible grief, 
and forms a bulwark in moments of temptation and a reservoir of wisdom to lead us in the way that we should go. May each of us be brought by the Spirit of God to that place in life in which we can testify with David, your word, your entire word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful and we need to be grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. For if you had not, we could not know you. We would know nothing of your character, of your acts, your will for our lives, your provision for our souls. We can only guess about these things as the religion, religions of the world guess, but we would live in darkness. You have revealed yourself to us in Genesis, in Revelation, in all of the books between the two. Make of us disciples. Make of us learners. Make of us students of your word in order that we might know you and serve you as we ought. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.